Welcome to another episode of Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me with me, Brandon Nakamura. And me, Carolyn Abigail. So, we have a new, it might not sound like Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me because we have a new intro song. And, and maybe, Carolyn, you can talk a little bit about that. Well, yes. So, the intro music that we've been using, and also the outro music, and any sort of incidental music that's popped up in the episodes up till now are actually from an album that we have in the collection from the Nisei Japanese-Canadian singer Aiko Saita, who was a classically trained singer before World War II and very popular in the community. And I got really curious about that when I started working on these episodes. And, you know, she seems to have actually a really interesting life story and I wanted to learn more about it. This particular song is actually an Italian song that she sang in Japanese. And it... Which she seemed to do a lot of. It's, it seems like she was taking a lot of yes. things from other languages and doing them in Japanese. Yes, well, she trained in Italy. Mm-hmm. So this song is called, I don't have any idea of how to pronounce this properly, but uh, Portami Tante Rose, which is translated into Japanese on the album notes as Kimi ga Muneni, which means you're in my heart, but the Italian actually translates to bring me lots of roses. So maybe they didn't have roses in Japan back then. Maybe. Or they weren't big on them. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that when we were looking at her music, we talk, Raymond and I talked about is it'd be nice to have intro music that we're using from her songs that actually you can hear her singing and maybe we would dedicate an episode to her and talk more about her really amazing story so with the the new year we have a new song a new outlook and uh, we'll take it from there mm-hmm. to begin with she she was born back in uh, 1909 in Cumberland have you ever been to Cumberland I haven't, have you? No, no, I haven't, but my grandfather uh, uh, originally went to Cumberland uh, back in uh, 1912. He had a sponsor, so he was working in Cumberland right around the time when she would have been there. Because she was born in 1909, and it's Mm. possible that that they would have known uh, the family. She was the third daughter of Kojiro and Koma Saita, Mm -hmm. and uh, they were living at uh, number 10 in the number one Japanese town of Cumberland, B.C., it, it seemed right. like they, they numbered the different areas after the mines. Yes, because there's a mining town, and there were two different Japanese towns, and I think at least one Chinese town as well. Yeah, a lot of Chinese, yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is on Vancouver Island. Uh, apparently, they, they have a commemorative cherry blossom grove there now. Oh, really? I, I came across this video where they planted 31 cherry trees to represent the 31 families who were in Cumberland at the time of World War II when they got evacuated. Uh, So the number one town had been established in 1893, and uh, I guess a very busy place at the time. And the uh, Cumberland Archives has a whole bunch of pictures of Japanese people, but they're just listed as Japanese person. (laughs) (laughs) So she might be in there. Her family might be in there, but I don't know. And it seems like she... uh, had Japanese connections from early on, going going to Japan even as a child. Mm. But her father died when she was only four, mm-hmm. and then her mother remarried and became a Yoshikuni. Mm-hmm. And she then had four sons with her second marriage. Right, so Aiko Saita came from a big family. Had a lot of connections. Right. And her and her older brother and her mother were all well known for having beautiful singing voices. But her brother went off and became a doctor, and Aiko decided that she wanted to become a dentist. 
So she went to Vancouver when she was 14 to go to high school. And after she finished high school, she was living in the house of an Issei Japanese dentist named Dr. Miyake and working as a sort of nurse or maid for their children. But it seems like she really became very close to Dr. Miyake and his wife because they also really loved music and they bonded over that. Mm. And it seems like over the years, they became almost like sometimes surrogate parents, sometimes patrons. Mrs. Miyake would take her out to parties, even though she was technically the, the nanny almost. Mm. They really helped her and encouraged her to sing and perform. I think that, that practice of living in households, schoolgirling, where they were going to school and then they would, mm-hmm. in exchange for doing jobs around the house, uh, I think some of my aunts had done that in other mm-hmm. situations. Mm-hmm. So, uh, despite that, that dental aspiration, it <laughs> seems that she was singing it. And in 1931, this Japanese tenor, Yoshie Fujiwara, a male singer, Yoshie kind of confuses me because I think of it as it a sounds female. Like yeah, but uh, he he was instrumental in developing opera in Japan mm-hmm. generally, and he heard her singing and and encouraged her to go into music instead of dentistry. Right, and so she ended up going to the Toronto Conservatory of Music, and when she was graduating from there, another Japanese singer, Toshiko Sakia, told her you should go study in Italy. Mm-hmm. I think the Toronto Conservatory is. Now the Royal Conservatory. Is it? Uh, yeah, so they converted. And, and I remember when I grew up in Toronto, mm-hmm. I, I have no musical talent, but I had to take <laughs> piano lessons, and I, I had to go into this old building uh, for doing the testing. It's, oh. it's all a new building now, I think, but, okay. but uh, that's how it evolved. Hmm. So, yeah, after Aiko got this advice to go train classically in Italy because of her talent... That, and that was the uh, Japanese soprano. Yes, uh, Toshiko. Toshiko Sekia. Yeah, right. Once the community heard about this, they formed the Saita Aiko Koenkai, which means Saita Aiko Support Group, and they raised the money to send her to Italy to study in Milan. And they did it very quickly, because I think she went that same year or the year after. It was pretty amazing. Yeah, there must have been quite an awareness of her ability, I guess, mm-hmm. as well. And, and they often did that, I guess that's a conventional thing of the family name first, the Saita and yes. Aiko. And so she studied in Italy until 1935, and then she wasn't sure whether she was going to stay in Italy, but she ended up signing a contract with the Japan Victor Company and having an exclusive contract with them to perform and record in Japan. I understand that that's now JVC. Oh, that's good. that yeah. yeah so JVC. Japan yeah yeah so, so it's funny that yeah yeah you think today. of it that's right it it morphed. And at the time, then, it was fairly uh, new to be recording sound and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so her instructor was a Madame Ripa. I oh. guess in Italian, you have yes. to roll the R's more. <laughs> and so she was a mezzo-soprano, and I understand that mezzo-soprano is sort of the more common range for female voices, rather than the soprano being higher. And, mm-hmm. and so it's in between the soprano and the contralto. But they have sometimes spicier roles, more of the villain, villainous oh, yeah. uh, roles, <laughs> have this lower voice, I guess. Well, she was known in opera for her signature role, I think, was Carmen. Mm-hmm. She One sang of her, Carmen, right. Right. Um, which is nice because... Um, if she had stayed in Italy, she probably would have only been allowed to sing Madame Butterfly. Oh, that's an interesting, that's an interesting observation. That's right. Well, that's, that, yeah, it seems to be part of what was shaping her career choices at the time. Uh-huh. Um, 
opera was still options. very new in Japan. Right. So it was lucky for her that it started to take off and maybe partly because of her. Hmm. So it seems that in 1935, she gave a recital at the Gunjin Kaikan. Oh. It turns out this is the ex-soldiers hall, so it kind of has this nationalistic oh, angle to it. <laughs> uh, uh, but her voice got a lot of commentary, even a hint of wildness. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting <laughs> that there's something about that. Yeah. I think she benefited from being seen as kind of exotic in Japan, from being born in Canada. If you mm. look at the recordings of her that we have, there's quite a few songs that are sort of American jazz standards translated into Japanese. So she's singing the same songs as like Frank Sinatra and mm. Crosby. And there's also quite a few songs from Mexico. So I guess even just, you know, North America in general is considered her domain and like we mentioned earlier, Italian songs. So that sort of international flavor that she brought to her music from her background, from being born abroad and training in Italy, I think really added to her appeal early in her career. Mm-hmm. So she got to be a, a red label. I guess they had different categories under, mm-hmm. under the records. That, and their labels were different colors. <laughs> and, uh, so yeah, this whole variety. Apparently, she had a, a pseudonym as well for more of the folksy ones, the yeah. Yo- Yoshie Tachibana. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's for Yoshie, the other guy. Oh, that's an interesting thought. Cause, <laughs> yeah, he was still involved uh, with opera and had been recruiting her later on mm-hmm. for, for doing that, mm-hmm. those kind of songs. Yeah, they were friends. What I think is interesting is that she still had this interest in being connected to Canada. Oh, definitely. And then so in uh, 1937, she had a tour set up in, in Canada. So they would have to take a boat. I guess that would take a while to yeah, get across. Yeah, months. And the Nihonjin Kaikan in Vancouver, the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if that's at the Japanese school where it was the hall. Well, probably. Uh, the, uh, uh, it seemed like they did a lot of yeah. concerts that way. And again, there were probably a lot more buildings that they could have done that type of thing in before the war. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that tour was wildly successful, right? Mm-hmm. That, uh, there's a uh, reference to one night where she had so many encores, she sang about a hundred songs <laughs> altogether. Can you imagine? And she was a very, she was a classically trained like opera singer. And, mm-hmm. you know, operas, they have two casts so they can switch off and rest their voices each night. So oh. it's quite exhausting just to sing in that way. Yeah, so. yeah. That's amazing. Huh. And she also apparently performed in, uh, yeah, the Hotel Vancouver mm-hmm. and uh, the Empress Theater. So th- that was that was terrific. And and you can see in the the newspapers as well that the, the local newspapers they're interested in them, at least the Japanese Canadian right. ones. And she did make an effort to go to different communities in BC that had Japanese immigrants there, even if they weren't you know big cities. Like right. Vancouver, yes. Just, yeah. And so many of these Japanese immigrants had never seen a concert before. Right, yeah, and that's an interesting idea. she went particularly for them to be able to hear her mm-hmm, as part mm-hmm. of the community. So that seems to be perhaps part of her appeal, that, that she was definitely not an elitist, even though mm-hmm. you perhaps think of opera as being mm-hmm. kind of a, a high culture kind of right. thing. But she was definitely trying to appeal to a broad range. Mm-hmm. And I guess she liked touring. She came back two years later yeah. uh, in 1939 and also touring part of the United States. Mm-hmm. I understand that she also even got a connection with uh, the NBC to get a, a license to broadcast so that there were some Yeah, she happened. did. She recorded some things with them, I guess, in the studio in the States when she was doing that tour. We actually have a program 
from one of the concerts from her second tour in the museum archives here, and I was taking it out and showing it to Raymond. Uh, what did we find out, Raymond? <laughs> well, actually, it was my mom who donated. I had been speaking to her earlier about eicocytes, and she said, oh, yeah, I remember seeing her before the war. I think I used to have a program. Now that I think about it, I must have gotten it from her before, and I'd forgotten, and then she'd forgotten what it was. So it's a good thing it's in our collection. It is interesting to look at that they've got the little logo, the Victor logo mm -hmm. with the dog in the corner, and also the Yoshia Fujiwara is on the program, mm -hmm. so he was still involved in her career. And one of the things that was on the program was the listing of the songs she sang, of course, and you can see a, a big range. She sang Danny Boy probably in English, as well as, you know, opera song. She sang a song from Carmen. She sang Portani Tante Rose, actually. And on the back, there was a biographical note that mentions that she came to North America a few years before, and this is her second tour. And it mentions that relations between Japan and Canada are not so good lately. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that she's, you know, trying to be sort of, I guess, an ambassador for that relationship in Canada and also the United States, where she also went on her tour. Right, right. And it certainly seems a lot of interest. I, I was finding old uh, new Canadian issues, and they were mentioning about when she was appearing in the stage, she was in San Francisco and, and there was a headline, Cumberland-born Nisei singer thrills Los Angeles. And in Vancouver they had a recital which also included, he's no relation, but his name is Satoshi Nakamura and he was on the bill and my, my mom remembers that part of it. And there was a description by another writer who really seemed enthralled with her personality, even beyond the writing. Mm -hmm. He said, talking to her is one of those rare pleasures that nothing would ever induce me to forego. Wow. So he was really excited about being able to do an interview with her. Yeah, for sure. It makes me think about the Asahi team, and people talk about how even mm. Caucasian people, Caucasian Canadian people would cheer for the Asahi because they were so skilled and that became a way for them to transcend the racist discrimination at the time. Hmm. And I wonder if Aiko Saita was doing a similar thing when she was on tour, that she was prompting the admiration of people outside of the Nikkei community and that was helping bring them a little closer together, although of course with what happened later it wasn't quite enough. Yeah, yeah. So I guess after 1939, or, or into 1940 then, mm -hmm. uh, she returned to Japan. Yes. And was performing with the Fujiwara Opera Company. So you were talking about her favorite roles. Yes, so she toured as the title role in Carmen, uh, when I guess opera was just taking off in Japan, and she also sang the role of Amaris in Aida. But it sounds like the rising nationalism in Japan really affected her work because it wasn't as good to be exotic anymore. Having think, foreign connections. Yeah, yeah, so I think opera kind of tapered off a bit when the war got more intense and she wasn't really, nobody wanted her to sing in English anymore. And she actually was touring and singing in Japanese and touring places where there were troops. So she was in Manchuria in 1945 to perform for the Japanese civilians and army there mm -hmm. and actually got captured by the Russians at the end of the war mm -hmm. and was interned by them for several months in a camp. I wonder if they appreciated opera. Maybe she could have been singing some... There is a sort of the Russian interest in those sort of things. Well, but. I hope so. It seems like kind of a dark time in her life. Yeah, She did yeah. Um, get out of it um, eventually and returned to her career. 
And I think it was around that time that her voice changed a little. It, became, it was a mezzo-soprano before, but she became a contralto, which is slightly lower. Oh. I kind of wonder if it's partly because of that period. Hmm. In 1946, her mother and, and half-brothers who had been interned in Canada ended up going back to Japan or going to Japan and, and meeting up with her. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like her stepfather actually passed away while being interned in a oh. camp. Oh, sure. So, very sad time mm. for the family, for mm-hmm. the whole family, not just her. Mm-hmm. But at least they were reunited in Japan. I guess they were part of the people who decided to be deported because they had her there. Right, they had the connection. Mm-hmm. And then she toured Canada again in 1953 and made sure to go to the different sites where the community had dispersed to. So, like Calgary, Toronto, she wanted to visit again the whole community even though it was even farther apart than when she had been there before. Right, yeah, that, that must have been a shock to her to see how, mm-hmm. how different everything yeah. uh, was. It seems like she must have really wanted to go. There was a, an interview, apparently, about how she missed her, her, her brother and, mm-hmm. and uh, the Miyake. Yeah. Because her older brother was still in Canada. He was still a doctor while her younger brothers were with mm-hmm. her. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, more than 10 years had passed since she'd been in Canada, mm-hmm. and then... Even though she wasn't well, it seems, that uh, she decided to start this tour. Right. And she actually had to cut off her tour because the illness got worse and she was in hospital for several months. Mm-hmm. And that being the, the tail end of it, before that she was able to go to Vancouver and, and in Toronto she was interviewed by the, the Toronto Star. Uh, it seems oh. that she gave the recital at the Ukrainian Labor Temple. I haven't been there, but... Um, that's an interesting indication, maybe, of the, the audience, the diversified audience that was becoming aware of her, right. or, or at least at the time, because there was also a notice in the Globe and Mail mm-hmm. which referenced that incident in, in Manchuria a little bit. Right. And also you see the different communities helping each other and sharing resources. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. In the, uh, the New Canadian in, in October, they mentioned that uh, her performance... She wore both Japanese kimono and, and Western attire oh. at, at different parts of it. Mm-hmm. And, and as an example of the diversity, it seems that the program began with Carry Me Back to Old Virginia. Oh. <laughs> and then ended with a Japanese version of Carmen. So that, that kind of speaks yeah. about the, the variety of what was happening there. Definitely. So after her health got worse, she was in the hospital in Vancouver for seven months. And... Her older brother actually decided to send her back to Japan when he learned that her condition was terminal so she could be with her other siblings and her friends who were there. And so she passed away in September 1954 in Tokyo. It seems like they're kind of vague about what exactly her illness was, mm-hmm. but, but there were implications that it was some form of cancer, um, yeah. given the, some of the experimental medications that they were mm-hmm. using. And she died quite young because she would have yes. been about 45. I yes, think. right. So that sort of adds to the... There are so many kind of tragic elements. It's almost, I shouldn't say operatic in itself, but her being young, dying young, and how the war disrupted what could have been a, an interesting relationship over time. Right, on, on and so, it's such a strong connection. Even though she lived in Japan and ultimately died in Japan, there was such a strong connection between her and the Nikkei community in Canada. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the reasons why she came a third time, even though she was so sick. Mm-hmm. I think there's one quote from Anise who said, Oh, Aichan came to Canada to say goodbye to us one last time. Mm-hmm. That phrase of Aichan, that I having that 
love meaning mm -hmm. in, in Japanese sort yeah. of overlapping with you know, their the, sentiment. The chan being sort of like a nickname, like, yeah. uh, you're, my, you're my dear friend right. from childhood almost. Right, and, right. you know, for some of them she was. Mm -hmm. You were mentioning that there were people who kind of had a commemorative listening of some of her songs. Yeah, so I guess about 15 or so years ago, they uncovered some old 78 vinyl albums of her singing, and so people had them remastered in the community and digitized onto CDs, which is, you know, cutting-edge technology of the early 2000s. And there was an Aiko Saito commemorative concert in Toronto in 2002 and one in Vancouver in 2004 where they played these CDs for audiences and gave commentary and some other people were involved. And the CDs that the museum has are the ones that were played at those events celebrating this history of Aiko Saita who was such an important figure to the community before the war and shortly after when she passed away. And one of the key organizers of that was uh, Kei Kishibe. Kei Kishibe, who we owe a lot of this information because he was one of the people leading the remastering of the CDs and also donated his notes on Aiko Saita's life to the museum after the article that he wrote for Nikkei Images on her. So that's where a lot of this information is coming from. I think I met him once on a, a bus tour of the internment camps. Oh. And uh, I remember him telling me about his enthusiasm for Aiko Saita. At the time, I, I didn't know anything about her. Um, but it is interesting to think about how much of an impact, both before and after the war, that, that the interest continued, that the connection was still there even after all that had happened. That it felt important to keep her memory alive and have a concert in her honor 50 years after she died. Mm -hmm. So I think it, it seems to be a nice connection to have her music connected to our podcast. Yeah, I'm really happy about that. So we're going to end our episode with our usual outro music, but I wanted to give you a little bit of context on the song that that is from, and mm. I might be able to play a little bit of extra of that song for you today. Um, the song is called South of the Border, and it was, I think, a 1930s or 1940s popular song that was written for a musical. And it's about a man who goes down to Mexico, an American man who goes down to Mexico, so south of the border. And he falls in love with a beautiful Mexican woman that then leaves her and regrets it for the rest of his life. But it sounds very cheerful when he sings about it. And yeah, if you look it up, you can find out all about the movie South of the Border that it's in. You can listen to Frank Sinatra sing it. It sounds, you know, very different, but also and, definitely the same song. And it's not that our podcast is in any way supporting that kind of behavior. But. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> we just support the enjoyment of good music. And, 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 and I can say that.